Welcome everybody to The Outside Edge, a podcast for people that live for the definition of extreme, whether it be athletes or any other extreme event in life. I'm your host, Dave Briscoe. Joined by my producer, Mikey Lee. Hello, everybody. How are you? What's happening, Mikey? Uh, you know, I'm doing all right. You know what? It's it's Memorial Day, man. It is. Well, it's coming up. It's Monday. It yeah, Monday mm-hmm. Memorial Day weekend. Yeah. So you know, I'm, the, I'm off on Monday. I'm super excited about yeah, it. Yeah, a lot of people are off on Monday. <laughs> it's, it's gonna be great. <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of people are out of work, so right. Yeah, <laughs> everybody, well, everybody's off work right now. Yeah. T- tomorrow. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. You know. Memorial Day weekend is always like for most of the people, it's like the beginning of the summer. But I mean, really, if you think about it, it, re- it really goes back all, all the way to April 19th, 1775, when the shot was heard around the world. 245 years ago, this is when this happened, right? In Concord, Mass. Uh, when we came up with the name, The Outside Edge, we wanted this to be a multifaceted meaning that it is. The edge of extremes, chasing dreams, and overcoming impossible tasks. So today, I really want to dedicate the show to, to just that. Our guests today are they're an hour drive from that spot in Concord, Mass, that changed the world, especially for America. Our first guest is a guy that really taught me the meaning of extreme. When I was a freshman in high school and chasing my dream to be on the varsity hockey team, he was a top player. I mean, everybody looked up to him, admired him. Not only was the toughest, the fastest, the most dominant guy on the ice, but he was also a friggin' model. I mean, this guy was just all around man rocket. Ladies wow. and gentlemen, Arnie Bennett. Oh my lord. I got a, I got a chub going for myself right now. I'm kind of horny. I mean, the way he built you up like that. I know it, huh? <laughs> Wait till you see his model pictures oh, from back in the day. God. Man. Oh. Hey, 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 does he have headshots? Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's so hot. <laughs> hey, Arnie, how you doing? Hey, Arnie, you want to party? Hey, Don't say it on the ice. I'll pull your shirt over your head. <laughs> I was up this summer, and uh, I was I was towing a boat around the U.S., and, uh, you know, Arnie and I have been friends for years, all the way back to high school. And uh, I stayed at his house for a few days. And he, you know, Arnie's into playing the guitar now. And uh, it was great because I always have my guitar with me. And Arnie's got a neighbor. And, uh, you know, this is when we talk about Memorial Day. This I want to really dedicate this to the people that have served our country and, and give us the freedoms that, that we live for. Um, so let me bring in our next guest. Uh, his years of active service uh, in the military from 1990 to 99. Uh, in Somalia, he was the 10th Mountain Quick Reaction Force. Uh, it, it was called TF Raven was the code name. Uh, he was a liaison team leader, Operation Gothic Serpent. And Black Hawk Down, if any of you saw the movie Black Hawk Down, uh, he was on the Malaysian team leader for the Quick Reaction Force. He led Malaysians into battle on October 3rd and 4th in 1993. That's when this whole thing went down. He was awarded the Bronze Star Medal with a Combat V for actions in Mogadishu. I got to say that Mogadishu. Right. Mogadishu. Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, I got, I got goosebumps right now. Please welcome to the podcast, Army Ranger, Captain John Breen. What's up, guys? Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate you allowing me to participate. Oh, it's so awesome. You know, I was up there this summer, Mike, and uh, we were hanging out with the guys and we were playing a little bit of guitar. And Arnie's son uh, was just getting ready to be deployed to Afghanistan as a Marine. 
and I was listening to John. I had just met John, really, and I was listening to him talk to Nick about, you know, what was maybe he was going to encounter and what it was going to be like, and, you know, they were going back and forth. And uh, I, I think, John, the first thing that we really got into after playing guitar and hanging out and learning who each other was was when <clears> you told me the story of when you first got in and uh, when you were in that tent and the bullets started flying. Yeah, we had... um. So we started, uh, got there probably, I think it was July in 93. And we replaced the team that had seen quite a bit of action, had been, got torn up pretty good with a, with a Pakistani column. So we, we kind of knew what we were going into, but we, except for two Vietnam veterans on our team, we were all rookies. And thank God for those Vietnam vets because they set us up. But uh, the, uh, I think the night you're talking about was the night after 3rd of October when, um, we were we finally got some rest and they shot our tent up. <laughs> oh, so yeah. this is this yeah, isn't right when you first is this when you first got into uh, um, active duty? No, I had been my first tour in active duty was Korea. I was on uh, an artillery unit that had a DMZ support, uh, demilitarized support uh, role for the uh, Second Infantry Division. So um, we were we were right up close to the DMZ and we had a, a job of uh, keeping Overwatch on the DMZ in one particular sector, which it sounds kind of exciting, but it was really boring. Yeah. It, uh, nothing really happened much, much of the year. Most of the year we spent in the woods. We got a lot of really good training in, but most of the action took place in the Korean sectors and those sectors were pretty active, but the, uh, the North Koreans didn't bother with us much. They hit the South Koreans a lot, but that was my first duty station. My second one was Fort drum, New York 10th mountain division. And that's where I got hooked up with, uh, the task force Raven going over to Mogadishu. Uh, uh, John, Captain John, uh, is, is it Captain John? John, how, how do you like to be referred to? JB. JB or John is fine. Thank JB you. or John. Right. Well, first, thank you for your service. Uh, this is Mike over here. I'm standing on your right. And, thank you very much, Mike. <laughs> uh, I appreciate but it. I just want you to know that my job on the podcast is to ask stupid questions. So, oh, good. <laughs> so I want to know who has the better food, Korea or Africa? Korea. You like Korean food? Yeah. Um, I love Korean food. I still eat it. African food wasn't bad if you could find it. But, <laughs> right. but, if you could find it. That's yeah. a terrible joke, but it's true. But the um, the uh, African food was uh, was a hell of a lot spicier and more goat and, uh, and like, um, rice-based. Where Korean food was more vegetable based, and it was not. It's just I still like it, but yes, Korean food I I would take over African food any day of the week. Right on, right on. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah. how? So lead us into, and I I love the the stories of how how we got to that tent because I remember you said you were kind of green and kind of a rookie that day that the bullets started coming through the tent, and it, it, so kind of lead us into that of, of how okay. how did that so happen? I'll go like from the from the Black Hawk down battle, because that was kind of the two days prior to that. But it was, um, we had done for about two months as a regular army unit, we had been going around town doing cordon and search operations, uh, trying to um, basically disarm Muhammad Fair ID, who was the Habergeeter tribal leader. And uh, he was responsible for a lot of the starvation in the city. And also he's just a, a cold ass murderer. You know, he, they, what he did is, he moved his tribe into the city, kicked another tribe out called the Abgal, and just left them in tent cities to starve. And there was plenty of food, but he just wouldn't give them any. Wow. Mm. So the, just uh, 
yeah, it was it was something to see, you know, that that humans could treat other humans like that. Right. So anyways, we start doing these coordinate search missions. And what I would do is with a three man team, I would go with the Malaysian army or the Pakistani army or the Egyptians. And I'd bring radios and I'd always have three or four helicopters with me, one spotter and two Cobras. And what that gave us was uh, what they called. It was an old Vietnam War term called a pink team. Okay. So any place we went, I'd be controlling the helicopters above it in case we got into a, a, a fight on the ground. These guys could support us. Sure. You know, so we had a little bit of light action early on where the helicopters bailed us out. And the Malaysians were extremely game fighters, so they didn't need much help. But uh, we developed a really tight relationship with the, with the Malays and the, uh, and the Pakistanis, pretty close, but not quite as close. So up to that point, we did probably five or six good missions, and we, we, were having, we were having some effect, but not much. And we were getting what it was resulting in is like we'd hit them during the day, and they'd fire mortars at us at night. And it was kind of a, a back-and-forth game every day like that. Wow. You know? um, the complexion of the whole thing really changed. And uh, it was just prior to Task Force Ranger getting there, there was a, an MP patrol out on one of the main highways, and the Habergeeter uh, blew up their first vehicle with about 30 pounds of C4 Ugh. and killed, killed the entire vehicle full of, of MPs. And so at, at about that point, we were already hunting for a deed, but at that point it really turned, in my opinion, before they had killed about 16 Pakistanis, but this was really the first heavy, heavy casualties they put on us. Right. So then we started hunting. And then about a week, two weeks after that event, Task Force Ranger came into town. Okay. So Task Force Ranger was a composite task force of, I, I believe it was Charlie Squadron, a Delta Force, um, a Ranger company, and some SEAL Team 6 guys, about uh, six guys from the Air Force Search and Rescue, and uh, a few Marines, and you know um, recon marines and that type but it was basically it was a socom mission okay and, uh can you they, explain what a socom is yeah it's special operations command and what they did is back like after desert or after the first desert storm they realized that they could do a really good job of managing special operation units as a group like you didn't have to just have delta just have seals just have the green berets you could combine them into a headquarters and, you know, it, what it did is it, it made for uh, these guys got a lot of cross training, but it also made for a very deadly group of guys that learned from each other and wow. were very competent. Nice. And plus, there was, these guys were also competitive that it, it brought all their levels up, I think. Yeah, it's like a dream team. It's a dream team of a mismatch of uh, different thoughts and ideas. Yes, it is. And it, it's it's still today. You'll still see quite a bit through Afghanistan is the J. You'll hear a, like a, a term called JSOC, J-S-O-C, and that's a Joint Special Operations Command type unit and that's it's basically a, a conglomerate unit so some of these guys are are back and forth now i was ne i was my highest level of military you know like tactical training was the ranger course and uh most of these guys had been through the ranger course and then about five more courses they were i mean they, they, this was your your professional sports level type guys if you wanted to put it on like that like I'm, wow. i was maybe a decent division one athlete and these guys were the pro bowl right wow right. yeah, yeah. So they required a liaison, and uh, 10th Mountain and them were not getting along very well at the time because the general special forces versus regular army dispute. So they sent me as liaison <laughs> officer, and uh, I, I, they said, hey, the officer, the guy has to be ranger qualified. That's all, you know. 
So I get down there and I'm a first lieutenant and they're expecting a lieutenant colonel. And uh, so right off the bat, things get a little fuzzy, but everybody down there is just so fucking cool. Right, you know, right. It was just a wicked eye opener at coming out of the regular army and coming into that. You know, like the first guy I met was, um, and uh, he probably would never remember this, but it was John Massajunas, who was Mace in the movie. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. And I remember coming into the compound, you know, regular army John Breen, and I got my bags and everything, and they let me in. And uh, Mace walks over, and he grabs my bags, and he goes, where are you sleeping? I go, I don't know. So he takes my stuff, puts it all on the end. There was one cot left on the end of the Delta Force row, so I ended up sleeping next to all those guys. Oh, right wow. In the, in the hangar. Yeah. Yeah. You, so yeah. I was like, holy shit, this is wild. Yeah. These are the legends you always hear about, you know? So sure. I asked John, I go, hey, I'm John. He goes, I'm John, too, and that's about all you need to know. <laughs> wow. So we start doing some familiarization stuff with them and they start getting into it quick. Like the almost the first or second night we're there, uh, we get attacked by mortars and they detect where the calls for fire were coming from. So basically what they got is they had a it's not classified anymore. Basically what they used, they took a hockey stick wrapped it up with uh, electrical wire and coat hangers and made a direction finder out of it. <laughs> and they, uh, they detected where the guy was making the radio calls from to drop the mortars on us. So right away they hit it. Wow. And um, captured a whole bunch of stuff. And that was when CNN said that we hit a UN building and it was a, a huge mistake and, you know, all this other stuff. So that's when our, our relationship with the press really started to go downhill. But that was the first mission I saw them on. And it was like something out of re- literally out of the movies, the, 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 like the level of competency and not just that, the speed and yeah. the way things were executed. These Nobody guys are ready to go, right? I mean, these guys are on the edge of their seat before they yes. even get there. And yep. yeah, and it's like when you and I were up there talking about, and yep. there's uh, obviously it's way different to be a pro athlete than to be in battle and to be, but the intensity that you have to have and the yeah. on the edge of your seat is similar. And it's a similar makeup of a mentality. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that that's a good, good point. And the statement that the, the story that reminds me of that quite a bit is the first that night when we got mortared, they went out like four hours later and I was sound asleep. <clears throat> we had taken three or four casualties and lost a bunch of helicopters. And uh, um, this guy who's I've never figured out who he is. I, I still ask other commandos when I meet him and I haven't got the answer yet. But dude was a giant. And uh, like it, one of his pecs was the size of my entire chest. You wow. Know? <laughs> The, he turns on his boombox and it's it's so easy, Guns N' Roses. Yeah. And I wake up and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And he goes, somebody's getting their fucking ass kicked, Lieutenant. That's what's going on. Get your shit on. I'm like, oh. Oh wow. So, yeah. So they go out and they hit, but that was that was their level. It was like at any time, you know. And when these guys, even after like a, a like a hard mission, like a long mission, they didn't come back and rest most of the time. They came back and fixed equipment. And started training. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, I got a, another story a little bit later about that that was is really kind of points it out. But so they do quite a few missions and they get quite a few guys that are high value targets, but we can't get ID'd. So, what they're going to do is they set up a mission joint with 10th Mountain. They're getting along much better with 10th Mountain after about a month. And I'm going to go with the Malaysians and raid a hotel called the Mubarak Hotel in downtown Mogadishu. And the reason we're doing this is because it's a wicked hot spot, and they think it's going to pull in some of the gorillas that they want to get. So okay. basically, it's like we're bait, and then the task force is going to come in and, and bail us out. You yeah. Know? 
Now, when yeah, I no. watched, if I can interrupt for a second, when I watched the yeah. movie, I, I just watched Black Hawk Down again. I know that you haven't watched the movie, but when you say the hot spot, it, yeah. it was uh, you, you don't know who's going to pick up a gun, right? Because you've got some you've got some civilians walking around, and yeah, they could turn on you and pick up a gun from behind a truck. And oh, everybody, everybody had a gun. That's you don't know where it's coming about. from. Yeah, and, and it that's not from what I've heard of Black Hawk Down the movie. That's not an exaggeration. Everybody had a damn weapon, and that was long before we got there because the place just everybody hated each other. Right. You know, you know it was very very tribal. Yeah. You know? There's one scene in the movie where the guys are bunkered down and they're, you know, they're, they're dodging bullets and they're behind cars and stuff. And, and a civilian walks by like right in front of a guy and she's carrying a baby or something and she walks yeah. by and he doesn't shoot. You know, I mean, you're engaged yeah. in battle and you're, you're panicking. You don't know where it's going to come from. And mm-hmm. she walks by and she it shows him her, put the baby down and he's saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And she picks up a gun and, yep. and sure enough, he's got a shooter. They, they did that to us on a couple of missions where they'd push the women in front of them. It, like a, they'd have like a line of women in the street and they'd be pushing them from behind with weapons and they'd be shooting from behind them. So to get at them, you had to go through the girls. Oh, type wow, yeah. that's... Yeah. You're despicable. <laughs> that's right, man. <laughs> it's a, you know, so you, you, you just did what you had to do, but it was just a, the, the way they're, the low opinion of human life was just... Nothing you'd see in Western society, even at our worst over here, really, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Like, hey, take these women, line them up, <laughs> you know? Wow. Wow. Dead. Yeah, wow. whatever. I got another one. So take us, take us back to the hotel. So you're going down to the hotel to be his bait. Right. So I go back up, join back up with the 10th Mountain Division, and we're prepping for this mission. And while we're prepping, overhead comes Task Force Ranger. They got, they got, a, they got a hit on where they believed ID was, there was a high-level meeting at the Olympic Hotel, which is where, where kind of where by the Black Hawk Down centered around. Yeah. ID possibly was there, but a, but a lot of his high-ranking deputies were there. So they come over, and all of a sudden, we get changed of mission. They're like, okay, Mubarak's off. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how this goes. So not long after, the call comes across the radio, Black Hawk Down. And um, like, uh-oh. And, you know, that, and it was by the Olympic Hotel, uh, about it was, I believe it was the Northern crash site was the first one to go down. It was um, Clifton Wolcott's aircraft, right? And uh, he went down up there. But then we got the call on that, and it seemed like they had it under control. But they start talking to me, and they start talking to my friend Ben Matthews, and they're like, "Hey, um, I, John, get a hold of Malaysians. Ben, get a hold of the Pakistanis. We may need some armored support and some other support to get in there and, and help these guys out in case they need it." So. Not long after that, second call, Black Hawk Down again, and that was the Southern crash site where uh, Michael Durant was. Yep. So. The New Hampshire native, by the New way. New Hampshire native. Oh, yep. is he really? No yep. kidding. Oh, yeah. Yep. I believe he lives in Maine now, right? He does. He yep. was from Berlin. Yeah. Uh, he's a couple years, he was two years younger than me. Right, right. So the Rangers make an initial push with a ground convoy that gets it gets lost and they get shot up and it's, it went through possibly the worst part, the most dense area, densely populated area of the city. And it's also in proximity to this area called Bakara market, which was like the largest arms market in Somalia. So, you know, as far as resupply and getting weapons, these guys were in a great spot, but where, where, are, they all, where are they getting all these weapons from? Most of his stuff was Eastern European vintage, and it was in, and it was new. A lot of it was was new. Okay. So there was there's a pretty active arms market in that part of the world where 
I, you know, whether it was because this all this also wasn't long after the wall came down, really. You know, I mean, it's maybe 10, you know, what, five, six years. Sure. Yeah. You know, so a lot of these Eastern Europeans were selling very high quality weaponry all over um, East Africa and, you know, any place there was a conflict there like the Congo. So these guys are really well armed. They had like when we we take when we take weapons off of guys. Chances are it might still have some grease on it. And a lot of times also, like, when you get an RPG off a guy or that type, it was brand new. Wow. You know, you know yeah. there's a, there's another movie, Dave, that you could watch um, that kind of it's, – it's based on a true story as well. I think it was called War Dogs. And actually, Jonah Hill is one of the stars. But it's all about um, how that arms dealing was going on in, in the Congo and Africa. And it was it was like he was saying, like Eastern European and some American dealers yeah. that were just making millions of dollars selling it to these warlords. It's all and black market. Yeah. And they didn't care because they just wanted the money. And, and then the warlords were going off and using this money to oppress their people. It was it was pretty awful time. Wow. Yeah. Well, that that's the thing we had um, with us. We had this uh, Major Jim Soper and uh, Command Sergeant Major Colvin. And Colvin was an SF uh, Command Sergeant Major Special Forces. And we go around picking up weapons, man. And like, just like you said, Mike, he said one one day we're out there and we find a whole cache of FNLs, you know, the uh, Belgian rifles. Yeah, you know, brand new. And he's like, these are gorgeous, you know. <laughs> we, we had these all over Southeast Asia, you know. And then, you know, and then we another day we'd find M16s, and then there was like SAR 80 Swedish weapons. I mean, it's just like you couldn't keep up with it. Wow, you know? yeah, unreal. It was wild, but it was really. Most of the, I would say, the majority of what the Somalis had was the Eastern Europe was the AKs, because it we got it when we got into fighting, you could tell it like it was the, the classical green tracer versus red tracer at night. Okay, and you could tell which side of the road to try to run to based on which tracer was coming out, you know. And the Vietnam vets were were used to that, you know. They're like, oh yeah, go 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 on over to that green, you know the green side, you know. So, so what's tell tell me the difference there? Does one shoot further than the other, or? How? No, no, but but for that's always it's like a classic, uh, like NATO versus Eastern Bloc thing is what color tracer you use, you know? Okay. So, so yeah. are are the weapons all loaded with a tracer like every third bullet or uh, something, or how does that work? The way we used to do it was because the the old saying tracers work both ways. So if you're shooting a tracer, what you use a tracer for is like if you're a squad leader, you probably have tracers in in this day in in the time period I'm talking about. Uh huh. Now with um, the, the much improved night optics, I don't I don't even know if they still use them because it does give away your position. But, but basically, what a, what a snipe what a what a squad leader could do is he could say, okay, everybody, you see my rep, you see my 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 uh, tracer going into this location. Concentrate your fire on that. So they'd use it as like a pen pointer. Okay, you know. Gotcha. So, but like you just said, Mike, every it'd be like every fifth to tenth round on a on a leader's weapon might have tracer to do just that okay gotcha yep. but when you did that and it when you did you used it it was always in mind is that like i've now exposed myself right know? yep so the majority of the of the bullets we had did not have tracer yep. 10-4 i was gotcha. using an m16 a2 you know it's 5.56 millimeter and it was absolutely awesome I, you know you hear a lot of complaints about m16 and the 5.56 but i absolutely loved it it was, was top notch but so go, going back to that, though, the guys come over us, the second Blackhawk goes down, and then they say, okay, go get the Malaysians. And to my friend Ben, they're like, go get the Pakistanis. So we meet up with the – it's probably 5 p.m., 6 p.m. We meet up at the airfield with the rest of the – what's left of the task force uh, convoy 
and the Malaysians and the Pakis, and we start putting a plan together to go back out into the city. So it was it was it was rough. Those vehicles came back in, and they were they were shot to hell, and they had taken very heavy casualties. Um, the Rangers were still being Rangers. The the Delta guys were definitely still being Delta guys. They you know they were working. They were going through process. They were getting ready. And we have a saying in the in uh, in the Rangers is that you never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. Yeah. So there was absolutely no question that we were going back out as and it you know maybe for some of the for the guys that didn't have that ethos that were regular army but the Delta guys and the Rangers were going back out with us or without us. So fortunately they went with us. So um, I was good friends with most of the lieutenants in the task force because I've been working with them for a couple months. And I started asking them about what went on, and they're like, oh, you know. And they gave us basically the rundown of that ground convoy, the lost convoy. Yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, I'm looking for friends in that group, and you realize some of them are missing already. Right. You know? And, uh, you know, thank God it was it was dark out, but I remember walking back to pass, past the back of a Humvee, and uh, there's legs sticking out. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, the guys are grabbing a quick nap, because that's what you do in the service. When you get a chance to sleep, you sleep. Sure. And my friend standing next to it, I go, hey, guys are getting some rest before he goes out. He goes, no, they're all dead. Oh, you know? God yeah. almighty. Yeah. So I can't even at imagine that. point that. right there, I think it hit me that this is this is much different than anything we've done up to this point in the city. Sure. Yep. So wow. we get a good plan together, and we agree on it between the regular the task force Raven guys and the task force ranger guys. There's a lot of argument, but it went quickly. So we start coming out of the port. Let me ask you this, John. At this point, yep. has there already been? Because I, I was reading about it earlier, and apparently yep. there were a couple of, uh, uh, f- I guess what they're saying is failed missions to go in to get them like right as soon as they went down, and then yes. there, and then there was a meeting of all the mines, and then yep. that's when the full force went. So is that where we're at on the full force going in? Yes, very uh, good. Yep, okay, that's exactly where we are. Yep. Okay. Yep. So we start out, and everything's like dead quiet, and the city's never dead quiet. And we're we're moving up. I'm in the third vehicle in the convoy, and I'm up in the back in the in the in the gunner's hatch, and uh, me and a Malaysian guy. Malaysian's guy's got a, a old 240 machine gun, very good gun. Next stand, we're standing back to back, and we're just watching the street going up, and we're starting to see guys with uh, walkie talkies, you know, mm-hmm. and um, we're like not good, but we can't shoot them yet. Cause they're, they're not armed or anything. They're just watching us and they're talking. So we turned. So the first street that was, that had the main action on it was national street. And I, we went down, it's a major, major street in Mogadishu uh-huh. and all, everything's off. All the street lights are off. All the shop lights are off. And they used to have generators and stuff where they turn the lights on at night and they'd have, you know, just like a regular market and everything, everything's off. So like, Oh shit. And we go past the first Pakistani checkpoint, which has about probably 20 Pakistanis in it. And they're as far back inside the bunker as they can get. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, I looked at a Malaysian guy. I'm like, whoa, that doesn't look good. And he spoke a little English. He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no bullshit. The streetlights flashed on and off, and then they just let us have it. Oh. And from there, for like the next 14 hours, we just fought. And I mean, literally, we if we had a five to ten minute break, I don't remember it. I remember like lulls in the bat in the battle and stuff like that but we just went so you must be carrying a ton of weight on you and ammo i mean you must be i had i had 70 pounds worth of shit in um body armor and ammo and i, I was carrying two basic loads of ammo which was like 410 round 420 rounds and then the malaysians all 
that um, really thought ahead and they loaded all their vehicles because they used M16s. Okay. Uh-huh. They loaded all their vehicles with ammo for us. So, oh, nice. Yeah. So when I'd lose a when I when I'd finish a magazine, I'd chuck it into the chuck it into the Malaysians and they'd start refilling it and chuck it back out. So it wow. was pretty. It was pretty cool. They, they were Malaysians were good guys. I really they, they really stepped up. You know, they didn't really have a stake in the fight, and they really stepped up to it. I wanted to ask you about that because uh, doing my research for the interview, I did find an article uh, where they where people were actually upset that the movie doesn't represent the Malaysian forces as well. And you yeah. were actually quoted in this as saying, "I would fight alongside you anywhere, any place." Did you say yes. that? Yes, I did. Yep, and um. Just to, to, to tell you what Delta Force thought of them, the Malaysians had a guy, a gunner killed, and the Delta Force guys carried his body to the uh, air ambulance. Wow. They asked, them, they asked the Malaysian guys to put him down very respectfully, and uh, six Delta Force commandos went around and picked that Malaysian up and put him on the aircraft. Oh, that's awesome. That's, uh, that is amazing. Yeah, I only, yep. I, I only ask if that was a, a true quote because I, I, I really couldn't uh, verify the article. It's not like a normal CNN or Fox News thing. It's just yeah. from a Malaysian correspondent. But she quoted you as saying, I would fight yep. alongside you anywhere, any place. And I wanted to make sure that that was true and that you did feel that way. And it sounds like you do, which is oh, uh, yeah. pretty yes, amazing. They were great. They had um, – the uh, so I'll, I'll get more into them too here pretty quickly. So we go, we're going up the road. And we hit uh, the junction where the Olympic Hotel is up. I can't remember the name of that street, but it might have been Olympic Street. But about four blocks up is the Olympic Hotel from this right turn that we had to take off National Street. So right there, the Pakistanis said they'd had enough and, and pulled off to the sides. And uh, they just their boss, would it wasn't the Pakistanis on the ground, but their boss would not let them go forward. Oh, you know? wow. Okay. So the Malaysians are had no... No hesitation. They're like, okay, whatever, we're going. We're still with you. And they had, you know, lighter skinned vehicles and everything, and they ended up losing a few vehicles. But so we get up to that corner, and uh, right before that corner, there's a left-hand turn that they thought led to the southern crash site, but it didn't. It was like it was a dead end. And three Malaysian vehicles went down there, and I believe two out of the three got blown up, and they had all sorts of casualties. Uh, and they had U.S. Army infantry on it. Those guys dismounted and actually were the ones that ended up making it to the southern crash site. It was a, uh, a squad from, I think, Charlie Company uh, 214 Infantry. That was all that got really down there. Them, you know, them in Massachusetts, which right. is another story. But so the Malaysian commander that's with me, he paused for about 15 minutes trying to find out. It seemed like hours, but he paused maybe 15 minutes to a half an hour trying to figure out what happened. When he got the the when he got the true report on what had happened that he had taken a KIA and lost these vehicles, he came back into it and started fighting again. So I was like, "Wow, yeah." Now, where's most of the fire coming from? The roofs or just everywhere? It it seemed like the roofs, Dave, and um, roofs and and from the interior, like the first floor type. It was only the buildings didn't seem more than two or three stories high on the road in. And so what the um, our helicopters were doing and the and the task force helicopters were doing is they were running the roofs on either side of the road. So they kept those guys mostly at a certain point. They were able to get most of those guys off the roofs, you know, and uh, that they, they did a fantastic job. And they, then they were running the alleys because what was happening is as we're going down there. If you stopped in front of an alley in your vehicle, your vehicle got blown up. Yeah, because sure. They were all oh, they were in every alley and they were just 
volleying RPGs at us. It wow. blows me away that no friendly fire real. I mean, they don't portray it in the movie anyway, but yeah. it, it, it blows me away because how do you know, you know yeah. where to shoot? Well, we were so they, – they beat it into our head really well during training. To So I pick shots. I never shoot instinctually. I never did. And, and then I noticed – and then talking to the Delta guys, they were all the same. You pick your shot. You know, but you're scared and everything. And also, you're trying to put down some suppressive fire so you can move. Sure. Right, yeah. But um, – and we were on parallel roads moving, which made it even worse because when we'd shoot up at some of the Somalis, we'd end up shooting into the Ranger perimeter. Yeah. Thing. Um, and we didn't cause any casualties as far as we know, but – um, that's one of the quotes from the Rangers when they heard we were coming in. They're like, the 10th Mountain's coming in, and they're coming in hot. Yeah. <laughs> Get down, you know. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah, because literally we shot everything. If it moved, he shot it. Yeah. And, and, and it, at this point, it, it, there's no, or in 1993, there's no drones flying overhead to give you locations of enemies or to okay. be able to take anybody out or anything like that, I, I suppose, right? We had a CIA. We didn't have access to it with the regular Army guys, but the uh, the, the task force had... And the task force was sharing this information with us. They had a CIA um, helicopter with a really solid camera on it, like a very high-definition camera. Uh-huh. It usually used it to look at the Swedish nurses uh, sunbathing. <laughs> As you and, do. Uh, you know, so they had that, and then we had a, a Navy P-3 Orion, a sub-hunter. And he was flying over the battlefield all night. Oh, wow. So he was, he was talking to us. So, but like you said, no, we didn't have the drones, but we did have, we did have some knowledge of what was coming in from the other sectors to support these guys. And, um, it was interesting too, because the non vets had taught us on, on some previous, uh, missions that these guys will signal each other using explosives. So you'd be, you'd be in one area and all of a sudden you'd hear three rocket shots in close proximity and, uh, you know, going nowhere, just going up in the air right? and not, and you'd be like, oh, you know. What's that? And then you're not going go like, that's them telling the other gorillas, get over here. Oh, no oh, kidding. Wow. Yeah. So they used like what we would consider a primitive means, but it was very, very effective. They had a lot of handheld radios and they used their, uh, they used their weapons to signal with as well. So pretty wild. Yeah. And they show, they showed the yep. old cell phones, you know, the 93 was a pretty yeah. big yeah. cell phone with a massive antenna. Bag phones were just coming yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's true. Yeah. So you're, so you're you're caught down there. You're in the thick of it, and then and then what yeah. happens next? Okay, so we got we're trying to make the turn out up to the uh, um, Olympic Hotel, and uh, we're stuck on the corner. We're getting our ass handed to us. We feel um, we're pushing, we're pushing, we're not stopping. The first three guys that we sent around the corner to get set up get killed. Um, the uh, one being Cornell Houston, who was a combat engineer and close friends with my NCO. He stepped out in front of the convoy and threw a grappling hook trying to pull off a, an obstacle. Uh-huh. And he was killed right there. And then Ugh. another one was uh, Jim Martin, who was an M60 gunner. He went in, he went up to set up a 60 and got hit. Hmm. So we're stuck on this corner. And this is the difference with the Delta guys versus the you know regular Army guys. Everybody's doing their job. I saw no acts of cowardice out there or anything. But this cat comes up. I believe Matthew or Michael Ryerson uh, Sergeant first class from Delta force. And he's literally jogging up the road to us. Okay. And he comes up to us on the corner. He's like, what's going on? We got to move. And we're like, uh, sorry, we can't get around the corner. He goes, Oh, what's going on? You know, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? like casual conversation. So what, what's the holdup guys? Well, you know, so he sees that we're in over our head and he takes off up that road. 
so I'm, I'm hanging the lower on the corner watching him go, and they're shooting phone poles down behind him. Golly. And he's on yeah, foot. I mean, and he's moving. And, and my God, the, the dude's got a radio on him, and he's talking to people. And not long after he gets up that road, um, two of the little birds come in and start hammering that Olympic Hotel. So kidding. It, it gets the volume of fire down enough that we can start moving again. Right. And then a lot of the dismounted infantry started moving. And then we started going again. But we're following Ryerson. Wow. You know? So finally, we get to a point where we're able to get the Cobras in. And the Cobras have, at the time, I believe it was tow missiles, tubular launched optically wire-guided missiles, mm-hmm. which were uh, intended to shoot tanks on the Eastern Front. But they're wicked good. Yeah. So, um we're still catching hell from from the Olympic Hotel, and the, you know, through like a things escalate to the point, you know, a guy brings up a 240 grenade launcher, and it's firing it into the third floor of the hotel, and, and you can just see the grenades going off, and the gorillas in there running everywhere. Yeah, it, it looks like a disco because it's at night, you know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So okay, we got these motherfuckers. Let's move. You know, as soon as we start moving, they start slamming us again. Ugh. So the cobras come in and fire four rockets into that floor of the hotel, and the entire floor collapses on the floor below it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that ought to do it. Oh, man. Uh, we all started cheering. You're like, you know? yeah. 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 I, I wasn't so, there, but I'm giving the Olympic Hotel a bad review on Yelp. <laughs> I, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bad so, so the Olympic Hotel backed right up to the Bacara Market, which was that arms market I was talking about, too. So we finally get up that piece of road, we get turned down to, uh, we have to take another right. So now we're parallel to National Street, and we're coming back in the opposite direction. And we're going to set up a cordon. We get orders to set up a cordon around the northern crash site. Mm-hmm. So we get up there, and we get set, oh, thank you very much. We get set up on a, on a corner, my team and the Malaysians, and a bunch of dismounted infantry from uh, 214 Infantry. And we're just, it's a fight. It's just a, a flat-out brawl for the next seven or eight hours. And, uh... Um, just remember, like, we get to a point where we thought we had them back and we'd hit them really hard and they just come back like in waves. Like they were someplace they were reorganizing either by walkie talkie or radio or something, but they get their shit together and here they come again. And then we just start fighting, you know, Good God. I think, uh, the closest I came to getting it was early on in the court and I got hit in the head with a rock and, uh. I'm thinking to myself, who the fuck throws rocks? You know, it's in a firefight. I mean, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm like, I guess fucking this war. You're throwing rocks over here? What the hell? Yeah, somebody picked up a rock and hucked it at me. So it hits it hits my head and it rolls under the vehicle next to me and blows up. Oh, uh, God. Yeah, fucking hand grenade. So um, there's a little courtyard that I was hiding next to, which I thought I was hiding pretty effectively, but I wasn't. So I started hit, throwing hand grenades back over into there, and the Malaysian guy shot three guys out of the tree. That was in the courtyard. No kidding. Nice. What do you so, think? I, yeah. I know you don't know the actual number, but just guessing, how many um, what you, gorillas to the um, to your forces? Like, what do you think the number ratio was? I I don't know. I um I would say from what I heard, the Red Cross said that we killed five over five hundred of them. Uh huh. So you know, usually like. If in a bad, bad, bad fight, you'll take 25% casually. So you, you could, could say maybe there was 2,000 of them and maybe um, 300 to 400 of us. Jeez. So you were heavily outnumbered in an in a area that you weren't really familiar with and yes. had no idea what the enemy position was. 
Yeah. Uh, just unbelievable. Unbelievable odds. Firepower. Yeah. You know? right. Yeah. So we stay there and we're fighting, fighting. And it goes on and on like that for, well, a couple of the ones, a couple of little actions that stick out in my head is we were uh, on this corner and it was after the grenade incident and stuff like that. And we started taking RPG fire. And it's knocking the wall down next to us. Wow. <laughs> so my hiding spot's getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> and and uh, a couple of the rockets, they fucked up, and the rockets went into the ranger area. So all of a sudden, little birds show up above us, and they start running that alleyway, and they cleaned it out for us. But they, the way they did it is they sat right above us, and they're shooting from the miniguns, and all that brass is coming down on me and the Malaysian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and hot, right? And it's, it's hot. Yeah. And the, and the Malaysian's like, what is it? What is it? A fucking dragon? <laughs> yeah. I said, no, it's USA, USA. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So it goes on until 6 o'clock in the morning. And um, at 6 o'clock in the morning, we get the word that Clifton Wolcott has passed away in the helicopter. Oh, man. And that we can begin plans to um, extract his body and move. So it's, we're starting to get light finally, and we're starting to see the damage and everything around. And... uh they they pull the aircraft off cliff. See the Delta guys will not would not go anywhere without everybody out of that helicopter. Right. And since Cliff was still alive and they couldn't cut into the bird to get him out of it the way that he was trapped, they uh ended up there like like we're not leaving until we either one get him out of here or he passes. Yeah. You know? So this is like just prior to that Mogadishu mile, I think they show in the movie. Mm-hmm. So we start loading um, dead and wounded, and the the Delta guys and the Ranger NCOs are like, nobody alive goes on the APCs until you know nobody nobody dead goes inside a vehicle. You know, so we got all these vehicles stacked with you know very badly wounded and and with um, deceased soldiers, and uh, it, was, it was just like bizarre, man. You know, just awful. Yeah. So they finally they get Cliff out of the bird and we get loaded up and they give us the the okay to go. We start going. And we start moving, and we start we start fighting again. Mm. But not as bad. Now it's daylight, and we can see everything, and the road is just littered with bodies. It, it just, yes, yeah, unbelievable. Ugh. And uh, we're coming out, and all of a sudden, we look back, and we hear yelling, and we see there's a whole shit ton of rangers running, and we're like, "Fuck, we didn't pick them up," you know? Right. Yeah. So we're we're trying to stop. We're trying to stop. At this point, the Malaysians are gaining some momentum, and they're like. You know, hey, look, man, enough's enough, you know? Yeah, they're out. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they stopped. They slowed down. We picked up who we could, but they were really ready, you know? Yeah. They fought very bravely, and they just they didn't understand either what was going on behind us either. I think they figured everybody was loaded. Sure. And was, was ready to go. So we're yelling to the guys, the Rangers and the Delta guys. We're like, come on, get in the vehicle, get in the vehicle. And a lot of them refused. They were like, nope. And they just kept fighting and moving and doing exactly, you know, their training and everything like that. Like you're watching guys, we're crossing an intersection and my NCO, Sergeant Freeman, is uh, providing overwatch for him. And he's, he's got the intersection pretty well down. He's like, go ahead, guys, go ahead, guys, go ahead, guys. And they're like, no, fuck you. And they stop, do their whole drill, cross the road, you know, and continue on. But that the, the discipline after, I mean, I was in the fight maybe 16 hours, 17 hours. They were in the fight over 24, oh. and they're still like they just come out of the gate, a lot of them, you know, wow. even after what they'd seen already. Yeah. Unbelievable. So we get our way back to the stadium. The Pakistani stadium is an old, uh, like, World Cup soccer stadium, uh-huh. and it's very well defended. We get in there, and 
I'm, you know, just exhausted. How far? This is the this is kind of the end of the movie, and they show yeah. that the guys what they yeah. show in the movie doesn't sound like it's the right portrayal. They show that the, all the uh, Humvees were loaded, and there was no room for anybody to get in. And in the movie, they say get on the roof, and the guys are like, "Get on the roof! You're out of yeah. your mind." So uh, that yeah. wasn't the case. There was room for these That's, guys. They just they they wanted to keep going. There was, I think, there was probably room for some of them, but in those guys is, you know ideology and the way that they act is that if one doesn't, if they all don't get on, nobody none of them get on. They're all together. All. all, Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All for one, one for all. Yeah. So a lot of them fought, fought all the way back. How far is it now from where you're, where it's hot and you, the battle zone where these guys can't get on to that soccer stadium. So it's a good, it's probably a good mile to, it's probably about, I would say about two miles to the soccer stadium, but it's about a mile to things where, where things got quiet past that Pakistani uh, um, bunker where everybody was hiding because we ended up going back past that. Okay, so the only reason they're not coming back is at that soccer stadium, you've got enough artillery there and, and backup that they're not yeah. going to come near it. Yeah, and plus we, we, uh, we fucked them up hard. and I think they'd had enough, but they, you know, so... The uh, we really we put it to them that night. I mean, they didn't have much left to go. It took them a couple of days to recover, just to do anything, just to sure. shoot our tent up. You know. Yeah, I so, uh, I read one statistic that said that American forces lost nineteen, and they lost, and they are still estimating, but anywhere from three hundred and fifteen to two thousand soldiers. So, uh, yeah. e- even heavily outnumbered. I mean, you guys you guys kicked the tail yeah. in. It was bizarre, man. So, like, flying over the city for the next couple of days, it was just guys getting buried everywhere. Oh, I wow. imagine. I imagine. Yeah. They'd look up at the helicopter and, you know, flip you off and maybe take a shot or something, you know. Yeah. So, but- you, you make it back to the stadium, and then, <laughs> I mean, where do you go? I mean, after all of that, what do you guys do? What's the first thing you do when you get back to safety? So, I get, get out the vehicle, and I go around looking for people to see who got hurt and who didn't, and we start offloading the wounded. So... Um, and the Pakistanis come out and they start feeding everybody. They're bringing out water and food, you know, very, very hospitable, you know. And uh, so we're getting fed and it's just, it, it, I'm not really sure how to explain it. It's like something out of Mad Max or whatever. I don't, well, don't want to denigrate it like that. But we had one area that was, became where, where the, uh, the, the soldiers that were killed were laid out. Mm-hmm. And then we had another area that had about 100 guys in it that were wounded. And we had probably 30 physicians because it was a U.N. mission. There's got to be a ton of wounded. I mean, they, oh, they, they always say 19 died, but there's got to be a yeah. ton of people. Yeah. I remember walking past one of my best friends and not recognizing him. He was hit so bad. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he, he was on morphine and stuff like that. So he didn't say anything to me. And then I saw one of the other lieutenants. I said, hey, have you seen, you know, so-and-so? And he says, yeah, he's back there. You know, he uh, he's, in, he's, in, he's in rough shape, but he's, gonna, he's probably going to make it. Wow. So this particular guy lost his leg to an AK round and a Delta force medic reestablished blood flow in the field. This is during the firefight reestablished blood flow from his thigh to his ankle. <laughs> no kidding. Wow. Yeah. And he kept his leg. Holy wow. moly in the field. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. That's the skill of those guys. So anyways, this, so all these doctors fly in on helicopters from different countries and they go to work on the wounded right away. It was amazing to see. So, most of the regular army guys like myself and everybody and, and most of the ranger battalion guys, I mean, we're shot, just absolutely exhausted, you know, from the adrenaline and everything. And we're sitting up in the stands, you know, kind of, you know, 
gathering our wits and everything, and I look over, and there's the a, a group of about 60 commandos, the Delta guys, and the SEAL Team 6 guys, yeah. and they're cleaning weapons. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. So um, I was friends with this guy, Lee Van Arsdale. I worked in the uh, Joint Operations Center with him, and he was the outgoing commander of that Delta squadron. Mm-hmm. And he comes up to me. He goes, John, I need you to go over to the Malaysians and coordinate with them to get the vehicles because we have to go back out. We're still missing everybody from the Southern crash site. Ugh. And I'm, and I, you know, I can't say no, I'm a ranger and I know, and I love Lee too. And I'm like, ah, oh, okay. And what is it like nine o'clock in the morning now? It's getting to be about nine o'clock in the morning. I just remember talking to Lee and looking back at the city and it's all these pillars of smoke coming up and vultures flying around. Oh God yeah. almighty. I'm like, oh boy. So I go to the Malaysian commander and I go, hey, um, we need to go back out. Can we take your vehicles? You don't have to come. We'll take your vehicles. And he was he was like, oh, fuck. And I go, uh, yeah. He goes, but he calls back to the to the airfield. And his command said, no, 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 no. You know, stop. And uh, General Lieutenant General Hoare called our commander, General Garrison, and told him cease operations. So to the Delta guys, that was a huge, huge, huge slap in the face of the Rangers as well is that, you know, they said, okay, stop. Everything stops now. You're not going to be able to recover these guys. Yeah. You know? So for the next couple hours, they're just helicopters in and out of that stadium, transporting out the wounded first, and then the you know the dead, and then the uh, us, uh, us guys that were in decent shape. So you how know? many guys, obviously, if only 19 casualties in the whole thing, how yep. many guys, the guys that were left behind, did they get out safely, or are they part of that 19 that lost their lives? They were part of the 19. Yeah, they were part of the 19 because unfortunately and I and I and I hate this part of the story, but because they were unable to go back and recover them, uh, that's when the Somali soldiers dragged their bodies through uh, the city. Yeah. And that was shown on American television, uh, much to public outcry. Obviously, why would you show that? You know, I but going back in after fighting for 24 hours, you know, and you're 16 hours, nobody's going to that 19 number could have gone a lot higher. I mean, exactly. What do you do? What do you do at that point? I don't know. I had to say yes, and I said yes, but I didn't want to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, the, right. The, and that's the level of them was they had – there was no way they were not – the Delta guys were not saying yes. So that was where – I don't know if they portray it in the movie, but a couple of the Delta guys went out without authorization and started searching on their own. Wow. Afterwards. Wow. But one of them Mace dressed up like a, a CNN reporter and was walking around the city by himself. Trying to find the bodies. Yeah, trying to find the bodies and trying to. We knew Michael Durant was alive because they put him on video. Mm-hmm. So he was our first priority, and we spent a lot of time looking for him. And finally, the Red Cross negotiated, and we got him back. But it was a, uh, it was crazy. The um, we get so everything gets reorganized after that. We're chilling out, getting our act, you know, getting rearming, refueling, getting a little sleep, getting stuff back together. And the Delta guys, the Task Force Ranger, comes back to Tenth Mountain and says, "Hey, let's do that Mubarak Hotel raid." You know, let's find, let's get the rest of these guys. You know, yeah. if they want to fight like this, let's fight, you know? Yeah. So, um, we start gearing up and man, we had just murder in our hearts, man. And it was just, there was, there was going to be much worse for the Somalis than Black Hawk Down was. Cause we were at a point where we were just, you know, look, we came over here to help you. You, you absolutely, you know, attempted to stop us at every place just so you could starve your, you know, these poor other bastards, you know, now you're going to fucking die. Yeah. Yeah. So we're at the gate to do that at four o'clock in the morning, and that's when everything stopped for good. They put us back. Uh, Bill Clinton and uh, Lieutenant General Hoare said there will be no more 
operations inside of Mogadishu. You guys are done. And maybe a week later, Task Force Ranger was gone. But that the NCO that had gotten the whole thing moving, in my opinion, Ryerson, yeah, he was killed on the airfield uh, by a mortar round like three days after the battle. Ah, uh, wow. Yeah, I, I don't know. There, you could have given almost any of them a congressional medal of honor the way they just the way they were, you know. But I really thought he might have might have merited it, you know, as, as you know, as well as uh, Shugart and Gordon at the southern site, you know. But well, I, I tell you, we can give them a round of applause for all that. I mean. That, I mean, that's an amazing story. Unbelievable yeah. story. And, and you have, you, you know, we, we talked up there. I mean, everybody always looks at the Black Hawk Down story. But you have many of these that you've been through that were you were some hairy moments. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, but nothing is anywhere near that level of severity, you know. And and I th- and afterwards, when we went through stuff like that, if anything we did, it was we were so prepared and so amped yeah. that our chances of coming out of stuff were much better, you know. So, and, and we went out much, much better prepared too. like, you know, before we would take a shortcut, like if, if you were out in the aircraft that you were escorting, you were running out of fuel and had to go back You say, all right, go back. We'll, you know, talk to you later. But, at, you know, after that, it was like, so for example, we're looking for Michael Durant like two or three days after, and I'm with Jim Soper and Ben Matthews my, with our teams and Andy Freeman and Bill Jones. And we go uh, into this neighborhood and there's intelligence that there, these guys are close to the neighborhood that Durant's hidden in. So the guy says to us, the, the guy who's the head of the neighborhood says, I will tell you where he is, but first you kill my brother. And we're like, what? What? Yeah. This is the, the map, you know, so he goes, my brother took the house on the beginning of the street and he has the water valve and he turned it off and charges for water. Oh, so, geez. Golly, yeah. man. <laughs> so, so they go, you go, kill him, you go kill him and I will tell you where Michael Durant is. So we're like, well, we can't really kill him. You know, that's kind of illegal, but, you know, what do you know? But he won't tell us anything. So we're right close to where we had the battle. And all of a sudden, you know, let's talk about before the RPGs start going off. Mm-hmm. And they're signaling, bam, 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 you know. And we start to take a little fire. Things are starting to get hairy. And our aircraft run go low on fuel. And the boss back at the at the place who would have, from Task Force Ranger, who was a very good guy, who, who normally would have let us stay out there and work through it, he was like, nope, everybody in vehicles, get the fuck out. You know, mm-hmm. but so, but we we never found Durant. We got Durant back through the through the Red Cross. That's good. And I was there when they brought him to the airfield, and I remember him. They set up uh, two huge, like twenty five gallon buckets full of Jack Daniels. <laughs> oh. He's from Berlin, so that's that makes that's sense. Like mother's milk. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah. so they roll him up onto the back of the hospital airplane, and General Boyk, who's Colonel Boyk, and then goes, you know, uh, we say God bless America. And did a shot, and then um, he goes to warrant officer uh, Durant, and we did another shot. And Durant grabbed the bottle away from a nurse and started chugging it. And he's all wired up, you know. All the oh, he gotta be. Yeah. yeah. And she grabs it away from me. Goes, give me that, you asshole. You know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and that was it. Mike went home and lived. And then we we they did we did recover all of the. All of the remains after a point, but it was it was very very difficult. Yeah, it was awful. Well, yep. Let me, let me ask you a, a difficult question, and if you don't yep. feel like answering it, it's totally fine. But yep. you know how uh, you you went through a lot. I mean, we just we've talked to you now for almost an hour, uh, hearing every detail of this really horrific battle. 
How have you dealt with it afterwards? Because you hear so often, uh, yeah. you know, soldiers having uh, post-traumatic stress uh, and, and things like that. Have you have you been able to recover with it well or uh, yep. get the help that you need to to get yeah. past that? I, I was fortunate, not fortunate to get it, but I get I was diagnosed with PTSD in 98, mm-hmm. like five years after the battle. I'd started having like uh, I'd never had like anything like claustrophobia or anything like that or problems going on airplanes until like 1994, like after, like 90, 94 or 95, yeah. which coincided with my first marriage, which may be actually the PTSD cause. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. But um, so I ended up getting starting treatment in Hawaii. I was stationed in uh, 25th Infantry Division and I got good care and I stayed with the stayed with treatment. Um I still go back every now and then, but I mean, as far as, as the way I found things, I thought the treatment, but see, I was, you know, there was maybe, you know, to the whole department of defense, you know, we are the only guys that have been in a fight since that first desert storm. So it was a small population of guys that they could, they could concentrate on. So I felt we got very good care, you know, but I, you know, I would say to anybody is that if you're, if you're going through it, get help. And, and you, you know, you'll never be the same person, but you'll be, you'll be good. You know, you'll yeah. be able to, you know, get out, get a job. Those things are always going to be with you, but they become manageable. And it's like, uh, as the, uh, my, uh, my friend Soper is a Vietnam vet has been a mentor of mine for years that he goes, we make a big rock into a small one, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Things have improved. What's that? What was that? Dramatically treatment wise too. So. I, I think there's a lot out there for veterans now and, and uh, army started something now too, which, you know, the army always gets, you know, everybody's, you know, cynical, skeptical of it, but a, a friend of mine's involved in it and uh, is the army resilience command. And it's talking about strategies to deal with those types of things and to learn from them and to, to carry on. You may never, you may never be able to go into combat again, but you'll definitely be able to have a good life. If you, I, I think the majority, if you choose it, Yeah. you know, yeah, there's a lot. Absolutely. There's a lot that you have to do yourself. There are a lot of resources out there, but um, I would say the VA maybe needs to do a better job of going out and finding people. But then I think people also need to really embrace the treatment and and give into it and not be scared. You know, first responders and you know and, and you know rape victims and those people go through the same thing. And you sure. know, you, you see, there's a lot of first responders are like soldiers. They 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 uh, tend to take their own lives a lot because of the macho. I yeah. think kind of feel of it but fuck it man you've been it's mental illness is a misnomer it's a it's a physical illness you get banged up in your head fix it yeah you know? exactly you know is, and that's you you and i got talking that one night and you found the guitar which is great because it, yeah. you, know, you and i are both doing that and mentioning that yeah and i've had a lot of pro athletes that either they got stuck on um opioids or you know yeah. it's all over and they don't know what to do with themselves and you know it's a whole different level but it, there's still the intensity and, and the intensity yeah. of being a human being and and if you, if you challenge to be a pro in a sport or you're walking into battle or you're you're doing anything and it's all over over you know it's a tough it's a tough deal but you're right it's your own brain and uh you do if you have the control to be a pro athlete and to be in the service and look at fire then you also have the the ability to to fix yourself and and get the help you need and 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 move on and And i think i think dave to your point too i think music can be very very helpful especially for a pro athlete or an elite soldier because when your body's not there anymore to the point where you can push yourself, you know, where you're, man, you got, you know, maybe you had a hip replacement, you know, something, 
whatever's yeah. going on, but that'll break a guy who's a, an elite athlete. Sure. And, and you know, what's my purpose? Well, you can get into music and you're never going to stop learning. Yeah. 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 That's an okay. awesome, it's an awesome point. I wish yep. Dave would learn more because frankly, he sucks. At <laughs> <laughs> I just keep putting myself around people that are worse than me and then I sound yeah. great. He gave, me two, he gave me two of my best, two of my best uh, guitar lesson tips was stop looking at your fucking fret hand, asshole. <laughs> And you need to sing, yeah. which has been everybody's bane up here because I'm singing. That's <laughs> awesome. awesome. That is so that is awesome. awesome, man. Hey, you know, this, awesome. This, this one other thing, let me just add this perspective. Now being the the father of a warfighter. Yeah. And um, Yeah, so Arnie, for the people that don't know, Arnie's son just got back from Afghanistan, uh, yep. and he's he's coming back into the U.S., so so go ahead, Arnie. Well, So there's an element that we really didn't think of, and I have an uncle. My uncle Gilbert was in Vietnam, and... Um, stepped on a landmine and he got fucked up yeah. pretty bad. And one of the things that's different about these guys who are now in these very intense um, battles, and, and I just saw this in Nick. Nick Nick was in a number of battles recently. They what they have today that they didn't have then, and John didn't have then is they still have. They now have contact back home. Yeah. In other words, right. so we I, we've actually. I don't know if this will go to any U.S. government because I know. No, it's fine. Yeah. But we actually FaceTime with Nick yeah. when he was in Afghanistan at Bost, which is a forward operating base, which is tiny, that was constantly under attack. Right. And and he was able. I I, I know it makes some difference. He was I, able to see his dogs and see his house yeah. and see his mother and not have to wait for a letter yeah. that may have been written two months ago. Or, yeah. You know, shit like that. So for these kids today. You know, they, there is a, an element of connection still back home that these yeah. guys didn't have, right? right they were right. in fucking Mogadishu. Yeah. His father didn't know what the fuck was going on. I got a 15-minute you know? phone call over a secure landline with a giant warrant officer watching me to make sure I didn't say anything. Yeah, I got sure. to say, I'm alive and I'm okay. Yeah. And and to your point, Arnie, I think that's very important. Important. There's studies been done, and they talk about um, Native Americans coming back from battle. Native Americans, when they were Native Americans fighting, you know, outside their villages and stuff. Yeah. And they stay, you know, they think that part of the reason that they didn't show, exhibit a lot of PTSD and those types of things is that when they'd come home, they would come, you know, right there, there's the family after right. the battle. Right. Yeah. You know, that type of thing. And then they're back into society. They're back into, yeah. and also they would say that a lot of times it was a, it was a thing where they give the guy something useful to do right away. Right. Yeah. You know, Nick, so, Nick was in, Nick yeah. was in, uh, you, you probably briefly saw it on CNN, but he was in the, the, rocket attack at Bose, the 11 rockets that hit there. Oh, and yeah. It happened in the middle of the night for us. We, we had no idea. My I got a text at 3.40 a.m., which when you have a son who's in harm's way, you fucking panic every time you get text at that time in the morning. Yeah, sure. I got a text from him saying, if you would see the news, I'm alive and all my body parts are good. Wow. <laughs> wow. But, That's crazy. But wow. It, it sounds trivial. But one one for a dad, and I'm, it's fuck you know, it's good that you know right away. It really yeah. makes you feel better. It doesn't take the fear away. But uh, but second of all, it establishes a connection. I, I don't I don't think people really realize yet how much it means to them. I mean, if you read books like On Killing and and those types of things, which is mandatory in the Marine Corps, they 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 talk about how they when they used to. When they used to be in battles in World War II and in Korea and Vietnam, those guys would be on the battlefield seeing atrocities like John was just describing, and then 
48 hours later yeah. and walking in a fucking ice cream shop in, you know, Tupelo, Mississippi. Right. You know? Yeah. So they just couldn't wrap their fucking minds around it. What the military started to do is like take these guys from battle and then instead of flying them home, put them on a boat. So they had, <laughs> so it took a long time yeah. and stop at ports and slowly integrate them. That's the first part of it. Yeah. But technology today is now letting these kids maintain a level of connection back, which I think is, is, yeah, you know, it's really huge. yeah absolutely. You know, you know just I, saw him for the first time this week and you know, has he changed? Yeah. He's, he's a different kid. He's, he's no longer a kid. He's, he's no longer a boy. He's 22, but he's, He's now a man. Yep. You know, that boy yeah. is gone. Right. But, but that's okay. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, Memorial Day, we always try to, everybody wants to think of the fallen soldiers, which is very important to remember the fallen soldiers and, and the country that we have and why we have it. But the, the ones that are still alive that, that live through it, like, like you, John, and, and like Nick, and like the guys that have come home, you know, I think it's really important this Memorial Day weekend to take the time and go talk to one of those guys and, and, and give them your appreciation for for who they are now. Because these are the guys, the guys that are dead, you know, it, it, it sucks that they're dead, but they're not living through the, the the controversy and the stuff that they had to go through during that fight in that battle. So, you know, go talk to some of those guys this weekend. And if you run across one, Pump him up a little bit because he's having a hard time dealing with society now, you know, and there's no political. So before we get on the show today, I went on to YouTube and I just watched some Memorial Day tributes and just, you know, wow, my head goosebumps ridiculous all morning getting ready for this episode. Um, I just think it's so important to, to, to really embrace what we have in this country, why we have it. These guys are not political when they're on the battlefield. When they're out nope. there, they're not Democrats, they're not Republicans, they're none of it. They're, they're out there surviving and they're doing what they have to do so that we can live like we do. Yeah, so we can stay back home and bitch at each other for the Democrat and Republican. Yeah. yeah. They're right. out there They're out there putting their lives on the line just so that we can, so that we have the privilege to, to argue bitch. on public, politics. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and... Uh, that's what I really want you to think about. You know, drop drop your political stance this weekend and be happy that you're an American and that you live in the, the greatest country on the planet. And you know, there, there's a chance that we're going to be going into another battle here with this Chinese thing going on. I mean, there's a chance that the, we're right around the corner to get into something really ugly again. And, oh, that uh, 10 years. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and and uh, I really want everybody to, to, to embrace that this is the best place on earth to live. Very well said, Dave. Thank you. Hey, yeah. thank you very much, John and Arnie. Uh, John, for your service. Arnie, for your son's service. It's very it's awesome. It's awesome, guys. Thank you very much for joining us. It was an honor to talk to you guys, and I really appreciate your approach to this. And uh, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, John, I can't thank you enough. And I am definitely going to come up there this summer, so you better tune up your guitar skills or your voice skills, and yeah. uh, we'll get back into it. Anything okay. you want to close with, John? No, I just really appreciate you guys doing this. And uh, hey, God bless America, and every, let's uh, let's all enjoy the weekend and be kind to each other, just like you said, man. Right on. And Arnie, love you, brother. You you were my inspiration as a kid. You still are today. Anything Thanks, you brother. want to close with? 
Yeah, I love you and, and Jenny. So glad that we've reconnected here in the last couple of years. Man, I can't wait to get, have you guys. I've been telling everybody you're coming up for a couple of weeks, so we're all fucking getting in shape, getting yep. ready. Get my bedroom ready. <laughs> Stretch your liver. <laughs> hey, well, really quickly, want to remind everybody, please find us on Patreon and uh, subscribe. That's uh, how this stuff happens. Uh, just $2 a month, as little as $2 a month, can support the podcast. So please go visit patreon.com slash the outside edge. Yep, and spread the word about this cast and uh, like us on Facebook and spread the word. Everybody have a safe and happy Memorial Day weekend. Hug a soldier, love your country, and love this podcast. Until next time, in behalf of Mike Lee, I'm Dave Briscoe. We'll see you next time on The Outside Edge.